I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending September 13th. All of the elements of the 5G consumer business are coming together. Network operators are building out infrastructure to expand 5G cellular coverage in more markets. What's needed next is a wider variety of 5G smartphones. Huawei, Qualcomm, and Samsung, three of the most important manufacturers of integrated circuits for smartphones, all happened to announce new 5G silicon last week. We talk about what was announced and where 5G goes from here. Artificial intelligence is being used to power the cloud, but what is the cloud exactly? It turns out there are at least four kinds of cloud. Did the word cumulonimbus just cross your mind? Yeah, no. We'll discuss the actual divisions in the cloud markets and what kinds of AI are needed for each. Self-driving car companies have been talking about vehicle safety as a competitive feature, but do we really want car companies to compete on safety? Here we have Michael Krutz, President and Managing Director of Wind River Japan, addressing the subject of what the AV industry should do about ensuring vehicle safety. Step number one is stop treating it as a competitive advantage. Step number two is leverage these other industries that have already figured some of this out for what you can. And that gets you part of the way. We'll get back to that in a minute. First up, 5G. There was definitely an element of hurry up and wait associated with the ongoing rollout of 5G services and products. Part of the wait part was that silicon for handsets was never going to be ready before just about now. Well, right now it happens to be just about now. Right on time, Huawei, Qualcomm, and Samsung announced 5G chips for smartphones that will be rolling off production lines in the coming months. Nitin Dahad wrote the story for us. Here he is with Junko Yoshida. So I read your latest story that is based on announcements made at IFA in Berlin. Let's talk about three different 5G chips designed for smartphones being offered by three companies, Huawei, Qualcomm, and Samsung. What are the basic differences uh, in these chips and uh, what are their different approaches to their respective 5G chips? Sure. So I think, you know, what I was trying to do here is really highlight the various different levels of and aspects of integration that are going into 5G chip development. Two chips, which were from Huawei and Samsung, which were a processor with integrated 5G modem. And, and the other one from Qualcomm is talking about a complete RF system on chip, including the antenna. Uh, Huawei, in its keynote, you know, they talked about the world's first flagship 5G system on chip, the Kirin 9905G, highlighted the 10.3 billion transistor chip in a TSMC uh, 7 nanometer plus EUV process uh, and supporting both non-standalone and standalone radio architectures. Um, both um, the Huawei and the Samsung, yeah, they support 2G, 3G, 4G, and 5G. Uh, Samsung, you know, it launched its mobile AI processor with integrated 5G modem, the Exynos 980 chip, and that's based on an 8 nanometer FinFET process technology. They didn't talk about how many transistors, but I guess yeah, I guess we can we can guess that. In addition to those features, I mean, Samsung also has a Wi-Fi 6 support, which I didn't see in um, in the announcement from uh, Huawei. On paper, both you know have similar sort of download speeds of around two to two and a half gigabits per second um, in the sub-6 gigahertz 5G uh, range. 
uh, though the Samsung chip seems to have the slightly slight edge at 2.55 gigabits per second in that range. Um, both of them sort of highlight you know, the high levels of integration with a multiple you know, CPU and GPU cores. The CPUs being, I think, both have eight uh, Cortex cores, and then the, and then the GPU with the the Mali, uh, I think it's A76. Um, so you know, there's very similar. So they have those, the, the multi-mode modems, the advanced uh, neural processing units, and image signal processors, and uh, yeah, providing that AI capability and HD video and so on. Both covers all the basic yeah. grounds, okay, yeah. and very advanced. All right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the uh, advancements Qualcomm made in their R- RF uh, integration. Sure. They'd already announced the modem RF system, you know, what they call the modem RF system, which is um, you know, integrating everything you know, for, up to the antenna. Um, they, we, we covered that in February this year. So um, that's not the news. I think the, the news is that they were putting it onto their various Snapdragon uh, processor platforms. Uh, and the first one is a Snapdragon 7 series, which will have 5G integrated into a 7 nanometer SoC. And uh, what they say is that will help bring some select premier tier features such as Qualcomm AI engine and the Snapdragon Elite gaming features to a broader audience. Uh, so it's it's that enabling of, of the RF uh, system on the various Snapdragon processor series. So hang on here. Um, the, when it comes to RF... Uh, what are the Samsung and Huawei are doing? Are they do they have a separate RF solution? Is that it? I, I would believe so. Yes. I mean, yeah. You would, you so would they didn't to. really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're not. Okay. I mean, it's not like for like here. Yeah. When when we look at yeah, yeah. The, the three. Yeah. So Qualcomm in this case definitely has an edge in terms of further integration, including RF um, no? on the platform. So I, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah. Again, I'm not seeing whether. Uh, the platform and, and the chip, are se- I think they would be separate or whether they're putting it on one. So. Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. But they have the whole solution yeah. down pat. I think Correct. that's the issue. Correct. Okay, yeah. all right. So, um, you know, uh, obviously um, Huawei's five chips are going to be used for their own Huawei 5G handsets, right? And maybe for other Chinese companies or no? I think this is this is purely for the internal use, no? I haven't seen anything otherwise. Um, I think what I have heard is, you know, Huawei is going to launch its first phone, the Mate 30, on 19th of September, you know, as I, in a few weeks. And um, that will have this Kirin 990 5G chip. Um, and others, uh, I think, you know, from what I've seen before, others in terms of other phones will follow from Huawei. I'm not sure whether it'll go into it. Yeah, I don't other. think they have uh, ever done for other companies, yeah. actually. This is their edge. All right. So what about, the, have you heard any design win rumors or the announcements uh, for the chips that they created by Qualcomm or Samsung? So all that Samsung said is... Um, that they will um, begin mass production by the end of the year, but there's no announcements. But I'm guessing, just on form and from what I've read from previous EFAs, and I uh, have to say they tend to sort of uh, launch soon afterwards uh, their, their own phones. Yeah. All right. And what about Qualcomm? Did they say anything about the uh, usual suspects design yes. wins? <laughs> yes, they did. And, and their RF platform, they said twelve lead uh, for the Snapdragon Seven series five G platform. Uh, they've got 12 uh, leading global OEMs and brands uh, planning to use the integrated Snapdragon 7 series. Um, and that will be Oppo, 
Redmi, Vivo, Motorola, HMD, which is uh, you know, sure. Nokia smartphones and That's, LG electronics. Yeah. I mean, yeah. others as well, but you know, those are you know, some of those. And all they said was full details of the platform will be disclosed later in the year. Look for 5G handsets from major manufacturers coming your way next year. There's a lot of hype surrounding artificial intelligence chips, some of which might actually be merited. There's no question there is a demand for AI silicon. By one estimate, the market for AI chips will grow two and a half times by 2024, when it might be worth as much as $10 billion. Few chip markets are completely monolithic, and the market for AI silicon won't be either. Sally Ward-Foxton wrote a story this week about how one of the key applications for AI, powering the cloud, isn't one market, but at least four. Here she is with Junko again. Let's start with the cloud AI chipsets. You actually recently interviewed the ABI research guy, right? I spoke with Lian Jai-Su, principal analyst at ABI Research, and he broke the cloud market into four segments for AI chips. Uh, first is the public cloud, the one everybody thinks of as the cloud, uh, which is hosted by cloud service providers, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, and those guys. Secondly, you've got uh, enterprise data centers or basically private clouds, where there's some reason to keep the data private. Banks, medical organizations, R&D, academia, these places will have their own cloud infrastructure. And then third is this hybrid approach that uses a combination of public and private clouds, which is companies like VMware, Rackspace, Dell, and a few others. And then finally, there's a new segment emerging, which he calls telco cloud, basically cloud infrastructure deployed by telecom providers. This one's still in the early stages. We're not seeing AI workloads here just yet. Uh, All the telecom AI workloads are still in the public cloud for now. But he did mention that Huawei and to a lesser extent Nokia were rolling out ASICs for telecom cloud functions. So maybe we'll see telecom operators with their own clouds pretty soon. Wow. So telecom cloud, I mean, why is that necessary? Is that because it has to do with 5G or why telco guys want to get into this? So the telco clouds were for uh, their own kind of core network functions, you know, 5G and, and other functions, uh, but also for their own IT kind of infrastructure. And they also have some kind of edge workloads that they need to, uh, to compute as well. Right. So of all these different segments you just rattled off uh, of the uh, cloud AI chips, which segment is growing the fastest and who are winning? In terms of the market opportunities for AI accelerator chips, uh, what's growing the fastest is the parts of the public cloud that are today or will be in the future served by AI chips that the cloud service providers have developed themselves. So Google's TPU and the like, that sector is growing the fastest. The prediction was that 15 to 18, one-eighth of the cloud AI chip market will fall to cloud service providers themselves by 2024. Uh Uh-huh. Outside of those uh, kind of high data center hyperscalers that are building their own chips, uh, in terms of market share, NVIDIA, still a clear leader and will be for the foreseeable future. No surprises there. Yeah. Uh, followed by Intel. Uh, the real opportunity for newcomers, he said, was the private data center market, the enterprise cloud. That's where we'll start to see new entrants. NVIDIA and Intel already have a lot of advantages there that are hard to ignore. But in terms of challenges, for established companies, they identified Qualcomm 
who have an offering for cloud inference workloads. In terms of startups, he mentioned Cambricon, Cerebras, Graphcore, Habana Labs, and Wave Computing as the ones to watch. Ah, okay. Let's move on to the Edge AI chipsets. I think ABI Research actually issued a separate uh, report on this, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, from what I understand, this is even more complicated because not all AI, Edge AI chipsets are created equal. What that means is that um, there are different segments for different AI, Edge AI applications. Is that it? Yeah, so in covering this sector so far, I've had a tendency to think of AI as the edge. AI at the edge as being AI in the smartphone or AI in the sensor node, yeah. which it is. Yeah. But there are other sectors that do AI outside the cloud. Um, ABI's definition of AI at the edge includes anything where you're doing training or inference in the same geographical location as where the data is being generated or where the data is being collected. So this would include uh, some of the examples of private clouds, enterprise clouds yeah. that we talked about earlier, uh, where the server's on the same premises as where the data's being collected. The definition also includes gateways. Oh. Uh, just to give you an example of a gateway, yeah. a smart factory where the machines are collecting tons and tons of sensor data and they feed it all over a local network into a gateway, which performs some kind of inference on the data. And then th this would be somewhere on the factory, you know, on site so that the factory doesn't need huge internet bandwidth to send it all to the cloud and they can avoid data privacy issues. They don't want to share their data either. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, so that's called, what, what's the segment? Gateway? Uh, gateways, yes, yeah. historians they're sometimes called, but yeah, gateways. Um, and then of course, you know, we've got the actual end devices that do AI inference and there's another half a dozen sectors here. <laughs> so for yeah. smartphones and mobile devices, yeah. um, Apple and Huawei have released ASICs for their own smartphones, got Qualcomm and MediaTek have also got chipsets in this market. For automotive, uh, the implementations today are mainly supported by NVIDIA and Intel Mobileye, yeah. uh, but ABI expects to see Tesla coming up and Horizon Robotics in that sector as well. I see. In the manufacturing sector, yep. companies that are providing AI-enabled servers are leading for uh, factories, which is Amazon, Google, Microsoft. Um, and some FPGA-based solutions are also apparently popular in that space. Uh, robotics and drones. Yep. NVIDIA Jetson is the leading platform in robotics. Oh. Uh, Intel's Mavidius Myriad chipset is, right. yeah, is finding some headway in drones. Yeah. Uh, Qualcomm also is a newcomer here, but they're starting to compete with their solution, which is based on Snapdragon 845, which is their smartphone processor. Right. The final important segment here at the edge is cameras, uh, video surveillance cameras, oh, uh, right. security cameras. Yeah, they typically run inference, uh, typically powered by uh, NVIDIA Jetson or, again, Intel, Movidius, Myriad, similar to robotics. Oh, that's a whole gamut. All right. So <laughs> that's a lot of sectors. <laughs> so my last question, though, you know, as you and I, uh, we marked this, that we've been writing a lot about um, host of new AI chip startups, right? And I always wonder, you know, they present really great architecture, they talk a good game, but hey, among them, who already actually have the actual chips? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a few. For the cloud, the startups for the cloud, uh, Graphcore here in the UK, they definitely have real chips and they have accelerator cards for servers and we know they're working closely with Dell to put them in servers. 
Uh, Cambricon out of China, uh, they launched the first generation product a little over a year ago. Okay. We know they're already making AI chips and accelerator cards for servers as well. Yeah. Uh, they apparently have some contracts with uh, some Chinese OEMs, including uh -huh. Lenovo oh, uh, for okay. laptops and tablets, and Hikvision, they make security cameras and some others. Yeah. Um, Wave Computing are targeting edge compute and cloud compute. Uh, they do have devices out there. Right. I think when you, I think when you spoke to the the new CEO of Wave, Art yeah. Swift, last month, he mentioned they were starting to transition from startup phase to the growth phase. So I think they have some devices out there. Okay. Um, Havana Labs is the final one out of Israel. Um, I think their timeline, they were expecting uh, Goya chip samples for the data center to be sampling in the second quarter of this year. So I expect they've got their samples by now. Okay. Uh, for the end devices, uh, Lian Jai's observations uh, was Halo, Horizon Robotics, and Rockchip were gaining some momentum with these end device manufacturers so far. Uh... Of those, Halo, based in Israel. Yeah. They're targeting AI at the edge specifically with a clear focus on automotive. Uh, they were expecting to go into mass production in the first half of 2020 when I spoke to them a few mm. weeks ago. Mm. Horizon Robotics, a Chinese company, uh, they're one of the famous semiconductor unicorns, right? right? Yeah. Uh, they're apparently supplying to the Chinese government as well as some other companies like SK China in the telecom sector. Okay. Uh, but they, they have some inv investment from some of China's big automotive companies as well. So I'd expect to see them in that space too. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to Rockchip. I'm not sure I would have put Rockchip in the startup category myself. Uh, they've been around for, for quite a long time. That's right. I guess that, yeah, I guess they're a new entrant maybe to AI is why you put them in that category. Yeah. Um, they're a Chinese SOC developer for TVs, appliances, white goods for the Chinese market. Yep. Uh, they have a, a flagship AI accelerator chip, RK. 3399 Pro announced at the start of 2018. As far as we know, it's a combination of CPU and GPU cores with a specialized neural network processor on chip, but that's as much as much as I know anyway. Okay, so we don't know where they are We're not being, sure. being designed in yet. We should, we should uh, check with our Chinese uh, colleagues then. Yeah, that's... We a, should. Yeah, yes, I'd yeah. be interested to know. Yeah, Rock's, Rockchip is a solid company, so I'm sure that they're getting designed win. Anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. That was a lot of information in a short time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we uh, look forward to hearing more about these AI chips, you know, and I think it's always important to know, to understand what's real and what's just the talk, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thanks so much, Junko. It was great speaking to you. We think that most people would agree that it's just fine when automakers compete on things like how efficient their engines are or how luxurious the interior is, you know, pleather seats versus rich Corinthian leather, or how many cup holders they have. But now automakers are proposing another area of competition, autonomous vehicle safety. Junko has been reporting on how companies that are developing autonomous vehicles have been treating safety data as proprietary. And what happens when safety information is a trade secret? Well, some companies will end up with vehicles that are more safe on the roads, and some will end up with vehicles that are less safe. That seems like a bad idea, well, unless you spin it as a virtue. And what's more virtuous than competition? How did we get here? I asked Junko. So we're talking about vehicle safety, 
as a competitive yep. feature. And to figure out why that is, we kind of need to wade deeper into the weeds. In, in that case, the weeds are about road testing and testing data. Uh, now, you've been reporting about this. Tell us what road testing and AV means first and how AV companies um, approach road testing. All right. Well, actually, you know, what's happening here is that every major autonomous vehicle company has been doing road testing, right? Mm -hmm. And naturally, they do a lot of simulation. They also do the testing on test courses. But ultimately, they regard public road testing as something mm -hmm. uh, very important because uh, they are expecting something unexpected to happen. And if that happens, they want to see how their vehicle responds. Right, right. So it's all uh, ultimate the guinea pig, yeah. Yeah, so you've, so you've got real-life testing, you've got simulated testing. What exactly are they testing with? Are they all using the same tools? Are they using all the same test methodologies? No, how do they no, compare? No, no, no. That's the thing. You know, everything is secret. It's <laughs> secret in this autonomous vehicle world. You know, even how to generate tests mm -hmm. is a big secret. And what testing sequence they use, that's a big secret. And uh, how their vehicles responded to those testing, that's even a bigger secret, right? So, so, how, uh, so how do they know what they How do they know? Uh, from from company to company, they're even testing the right thing. I think you hit the nail on the head, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, remember that back in the days, I used to cover things like MPEG, right? It's a video compression mm -hmm. standard. And every company used the same test sequence, which is always like beautiful Dutch tulips, you know, uh, panning the, the, right. the scenery of Dutch, Dutch tulips and, and behind there's, a, I don't know, windmill or something. Right. You know, I, I watched that tape so many times, <laughs> but the idea is on how you handle the panning and how, do you, how you handle all the colors, details, right? right? So you could, if you have golden eyes, you could actually see the difference. Yeah, a golden eye is someone is someone who's really trained in perception. Someone who who can f pick out the specific details, the right. edge of the windmill and whatnot. Right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't one of those, so uh, you know, I just kind of faked it <laughs> yeah, all neither, along. Yeah. But <laughs> but um, the, yeah, the, to my surprise, uh, I think this is a sign of immaturity of this AV industry. They are keeping everything secret, and they're not into the sharing mode at all at the moment. Okay, so that's where we get into this area where if everybody's test data is private, if everybody's mm -hmm. efforts at creating a safe autonomous vehicle is private mm -hmm. and proprietary, well, ordinarily, my intrinsic response to that is, that's not good. Um, it sounds like they're trying to say, no, no, it's good. We will compete on how safe our vehicles are. The companies that can come up with the safest vehicles right. are the ones that are going to win, right? That That's the yeah, argument. I think the real issue here is uh, there are a lot of those companies with lots of money. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm specifically talking about, you know, Alphabet's mm -hmm. Waymo, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Google car. And... Uh, they are so far ahead 
of the crowd, and they invested so much money doing this testing. And uh, I don't know, um, there are so many miles they accumulated. Mm -hmm. They think they have an edge, and I think they probably do. So they're not in a mo. You know, they considering all the investment they made. They their argument is why should I? Why should we share this with anybody else? We will be the first one to roll out AV on the public road. But the, remember, you know, Google has been working on this um, robo taxi thing for a while, and they were supposed to um, move into the commercial launch last year, but they decided not to. Right? So, because they're not sure how safe it is, even after all those billions of miles. Right, right. So is the argument, um, is it not necessarily, oh, we're Waymo and our cars are safer than Ubers? Or is this a time to market strategy? Time uh, to market. We, Time. Okay, but I think time to market also translates into the actual decision they have to make. How safe is safe enough? They have to call that right because there's no regular regulations out there that uh, there's no testing uh, by NHTSA or anybody else in the public transportation agency mm-hmm. to test it. So they have to call it when they're ready, right? But um, and that means that they're making a judgment call on the safety of their own vehicles, not against by others. But here's the problem, though. Um, I think you're kind of alluding to the fact that, yes, in a way, the Waymo wants to say, um, we're the first, we think it's mm-hmm. safe, and uh, we're, we, we were able to pull this off before Uber, so therefore, we're safer than Uber, in a way. Which is really crazy, you know, when we were talking about the safety thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one guy that I met in Shenzhen, he was talking about, can you imagine, can you imagine Airbus uh, would tell the public after Boeing's fiasco, oh, no, Airbus is so much safer than Boeing. They would never say that. No. All airplanes need to be safe. And I think automotive industry, those, you know, newcomers, to the automotive industry, they have to accept the fact all cars need to be safe. I'm actually kind of appalled by the notion that safety would be, even if it's not a competitive, uh, you know, a directly, right. you know, uh, Uber versus Waymo competitive, yeah. our vehicle safer, even if it's only like Waymo saying, oh, we got to the market faster because we deemed our vehicles <laughs> safer quicker. That's still yeah. pretty appalling. I think... It's appalling that the companies are reserving this decision for themselves, um, especially with when we have a whole history of vehicles, whether it's cars or trucks or trains or airplanes, doing precisely what you were quoting that fellow from uh, yeah. from your conference. You want yeah. all of the vehicles to be equally safe. Exactly. And that's the bottom line. But then I think there's also a reality. You know, uh, there are so many variables involved. If you're just panning the tulip scene Uh from left to right, you know, there's really not much surprises there. They're all tulips, right? You're tuning to the test. Right. Yeah. But when when you are, you know, driving, it's not just about your cars. There are other cars on the public road. And we don't know how those other cars would behave, right? right? So those are the drivers. It's more taxing, yeah. And it's more tax taxing to robocars, 
It's mm-hmm. hard. Oh, so isn't the answer to just like uh, uh, make everything a robo car and not allow people to drive ever again? Uh, just sort of take the the weird <laughs> factor out of it by taking the people out of it entirely. Yeah, well, that'll be the day, you know, when America yeah. <laughs> uh, left without guns. You know, yeah, that's exactly. never happened. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, so we're back to an argument where I think some public agency or even an industry consortium ought to get together and say these are the basic sets of standards for safety for uh, AV. Yeah. And they should be helping each other. There's no excuse for keeping exactly. this stuff proprietary, in my opinion. It has to be a third-party independent assessor mm-hmm. who can tell you that, yeah, this looks good, this that looks good. I mean, you know, check all points. I mean, companies should hire those guys, right? Uh, companies should hire people who can do that, and I think you're right. Yeah. I think you need a an independent ref to say, yep. you know, these are the standards that are acceptable for behavior of a vehicle. Um, these are the you know these are the minimum levels of safety we expect. These are the things an autonomous vehicle should be able to do for us to deem it safe. Yep. Yeah. I agreed. Yep. Well, as long as you and I agree. <laughs> yeah, the world will be safe, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, thanks, Shanko. Okay. And this is where we give Wind River's Michael Krutz the last word on the subject of how the automotive industry should proceed if it wants to make autonomous vehicles safe. Okay, step number one is stop treating it as a competitive advantage. Step number two is leverage these other industries that have already figured some of this out for what you can. Okay, that gets you part of the way. What else can we do to make sure that we've got a way to develop fully autonomous vehicles that are very safe? Well, you have to think about four requirements that you're always going to have under these situations, right? You saw, you saw the presentation uh, from NXP talking about security and safety and how interrelated they, they are. Absolutely agree with that. You know, the system has to be secure. The system can, people cannot hurt the system, okay? So it's got to be secure. It's got to be safe. The system cannot hurt people. That's the safety aspect of it. It has to be reliable. It has to do what it was designed to do and do that reliably. And in many cases, it has to be certifiable. When there's government regulation, standards bodies that need to deal with it, it has to be something that can be certified. So those requirements are always going to be there. And now for some technology anniversaries we're marking this week. On September 11th, 2008, the Large Hadron Collider was officially switched on in Switzerland. It was the world's largest accelerator. It cost $4.1 billion, and it took 15 years to build. It forms a loop 27 miles long, and it can sling protons at each other at energies of 7 trillion electron volts. It was designed to verify the existence of the Higgs boson. It detected what science agrees was almost certainly a Higgs in 2012. On September 8, 1966, NBC aired the first episode of a show called uh, Star Trek. The episode was aired in Canada two days earlier, by the way. The show would hire some of the best writers in the business, including Robert Block, Richard Matheson, Theodore Sturgeon, Harlan Ellison, D.C. Fontana, and Jerome Bixby. The first episode was The Man Trap. Now, that's the one where the crew visit this guy and his wife who run a research station on an isolated planet, but it turns out it's not actually his wife, Nancy. It's an alien pretending to be her. A few years ago, 
Hallmark came out with a Christmas ornament of Nancy in her alien form, sucking the salt out of Captain Kirk. I'm still kicking myself for not buying that. Anyway, Bone saves Kirk by blasting her with his phaser. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending September 13th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with the links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and sometimes video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times on air. I'm Brian Santos.